Hello, this is Anja Sambo from Philosophy Now magazine, bringing you today's Philosophy Now radio. Our topic today is Buddhist philosophy, ideas in and about Buddhism. The opening music you just heard was Maya by Kantoma. Maya, as it happens, is the Buddhist term for illusion. And Buddhist philosophy is very much about how to avoid falling prey to illusion and how to live in the real world. Joining me on the show are two philosophers who will help me explore if Buddhism can really help us improve our lives and provide us with significant philosophical insights as well. They are Martin Macho, who um, teaches uh, philosophy and also religious studies at the Royal Russell School. Hi. And Rick Lewis, founder and editor of Philosophy Now magazine. Hello. Welcome to, welcome to the show. Brilliant. Well, we'll start, I think, with uh, sort of a bit of an exploration of what, what Buddhism is, because, you know, we all have heard sort of bits and pieces. You know, we know about meditation. We somehow vaguely think about religion. We think about people in, uh, in interestingly colored robes. Um, you know, so, so what, what, what is Buddhism? Of course, we want to get to the philosophy ultimately, but perhaps... It's, it's also a package deal. Martin, what, what is Buddhism? Well, I think that um, <clears throat> what we've got to start with here are some claims that were made by the historical Buddha himself, a guy called Siddhartha Gautama, who lived between around about 560 to 480 BCE. And the, these are claims that are made on the basis of quite a bit of intense um, meditative experience and um, <clears throat> from the insight that he gained through this experience the, the Buddha claimed or makes three what I would call existential claims about the nature of our experience that, that I think it's fair to say that, 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 that they're seen by Buddhists as being kind of empirical in nature and they can be stated really quite succinctly and they said when, when you look very deeply um, at your own experience, what you find is that, well, everything changes. And um, this is the teaching of a Nietzsche. All conditioned things are impermanent. And so what follows from the fact that everything in this reality changes? Well, that actually then we're going to suffer because there are times when things don't go our way. Um, and the third claim... Perhaps the most interesting claim that the Buddha makes is that when we look at ourselves, when, when we turn the focus in, inwards, that um, you actually see that you change as well. There's, there's, there's no permanent, unchanging essence of the personality. And this is the teaching of um, Anatta. Okay, and we'll, we'll have to explore that in some more detail. But what do you think, Rick? I mean, is that, is that a sort of correct uh, description? Is it perhaps um, a phenomenologically flawed description of what human life is like? Because ultimately, ultimately, you know, philosophy is about giving a good description of human life. What about this, the suffering aspect? Do, do, um, I, th I think that's, that's quite a contentious issue some, sometimes to Western philosophers. Ah, uh, well... Um Suffering is obviously a very big subject because there's so much of it around. Um, and uh, I'm uh, lucky that there's so little of it in my life. Um, if you could see my face now, if, if it wasn't radio but television, you would see a, a mild look of suffering uh, due to my uh, anguish at uh, <laughs> being uncertain how to answer the question um, best because it's hard to know exactly where to start. Um, uh, I'm also uh, new to Buddhist philosophy and uh, uh, looking forward to um, finding out a little bit about it. Um, 
on on this uh, program, um, uh, hopefully trying to understand it um, with by 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 relating it to what I do know about a little bit about Western philosophy. Um, so. Um, hoping to to ask a few questions from that viewpoint about Buddhist philosophy and try to uh, enhance my understanding that way. That that sounds very good and uh, um, I'm, I'm sure we're going to discuss a lot of issues that uh, that that somehow perhaps jar with the Western philosopher um, such as perhaps the assumption that, that all things are impermanent. Um, I mean on, on some level this seems pretty obvious you know so um, I don't know I've got, I've got a drinks bottle in front of my uh, in in front of me here, so if I'm, I'm thirsty, I can I can take a sip from it, and eventually there'll be nothing left. I mean, of course, that that is impermanence. Um, on the other hand, it's a very big assumption to think that all of reality really is like that. Um, and also, then it's it's a very big step to take to the, to say that from that follows uh, that that suffering ensues. Is is that necessarily so, Martin? Dude, would you? Would well, you? well, I think that if you, the, the, the way that you can look at impermanence is to say that it, that it, that it's not necessarily uh, <clears throat> going to always lead to suffering. I mean, things can change for the better, can't they? Um, things can defy your expectations and kind of exceed them. And um, I think there's another claim that's sort of embedded in there with with, with impermanence. And that is that the idea of if things change, then reality is essentially flowing. And because it's flowing, um, you're never stuck. It's one of these situations. So you're in a situation where um, no matter how bad you're feeling, I think that what Buddhists would, would claim is that the, that, that, that the situation is inherently transformable. And so there's kind of a flip side to it, but the impermanent side of it is, yeah, we're all going to get sick and get old and going, things aren't <laughs> going to go our way. But the other side of it is, of course, that because reality flows, that, that, that we can't really drown either, that we're, yes. we're always going to be kind of, in some sense, carried along by the flow. Oh, that doesn't sound like suffering at all. It sounds quite quite exciting. We're actually we're actually going somewhere. Um, so so, but but the impermanence idea, of course, uh, goes pretty deep. And and you you have you have already given us a first hint of this by by referring to the anatta view or the anatman view. So the view that not not only external things are um, ephemeral, but 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 even the self is not something we can rely on. We we, we always believe, of course, in as 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 Western uh, thinkers, and you know, of course, we have questioned this, but but we're trying to hold on, perhaps, to the assumption that uh, there's some something that we call personal identity. That there's a self that is somehow permanent, that is traveling through time through history, through time and space. Uh, and, uh, you know, all kinds of things can change. But essentially, I will always be me. So when I look back at baby photos of myself, I say, okay, you know, I look very different now. I hold very different beliefs. I don't behave in the same way anymore, I hope. Um, but but nonetheless, this is still me. And, and so, so in a way, I'm, I'm the same. But, of course, Buddhism doesn't allow us to make that kind of claim. No, it, it's... Um what it does is, um, in, in part of the Buddhist teaching, um, he uh, presents an analysis of, of, of what a human being is. And he said, well, we're basically made up of five things, a, f a physical body, and that always changes. And then um, <clears throat> you've got this thing called Vedana, your feelings or sensations, they, they, they change because it's in the nature of sensory inputs to do that. Um, then you have something called perceptions, or uh, sana, the label that you that you put on the experiences that you're having, and as if you move around in the world, you're going to be putting different labels on things. Um, and then there's your 
reaction to the things around you and finally um, consciousness which which is held within Buddhism to be something which fluctuates I mean um, if you think about it, our attention can wander and fluctuate quite dramatically. I mean, if, if somebody's getting already quite bored with this exposition of Buddhism, they might be thinking about something else and their, 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 their attention is contracting. But um, there might be people out there, you never know, who are hanging on to every word that, that we're coming out with. And they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're thinking of getting quite into this. So, so all within those, those, those five aspects of a human being, there, there is nothing whatsoever that is considered to be stable and permanent in, in the sense of there being a soul or uh, something that endures, something over and above that. Yes. How, how does that sit with, with your experience of, of Western philosophy, Rick? Well, there's obviously a lot of questions there which uh, people in Western philosophy have been wrestling with for a long time. I mean, the, the question of uh, permanence and change um, was something that the ancient Greek philosophers um, wrestled with a lot. And you've got these paradoxes, like Zeno's paradoxes, where he tried to show that change was impossible. And then you've got other philosophers saying, well, you know, change happens all the time. You can't step into the same river twice. Um, uh, and you, you've got a kind of a dialogue going on there. Um, and uh, obviously the, the, the question of personal identity is still very much a, a, a live question. What is it that, that makes us us throughout our lives? Uh, some people say it's, well, it, it's, uh, it's, it's to do with memory. Um, you can remember yourself at earlier stages of your life. That's part of what makes you you, even though you're changing through your life. And other people say, or perhaps the same people say, that it's also to do with physical continuity as well. So there, there is a sense of, a, a, you know, a, um, Something, um, uh, okay, nothing is, is completely permanent, but something which, which endures for, for a time through your life. And maybe that's, that's um, somewhere where uh, many Western philosophers differ, perhaps, from, from uh, Buddhist philosophers. So if, 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 uh, there's a, um, if, if there's nothing which is, is permanent and continuing, then the, the question is, uh, in, 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 that you have to ask Buddhist philosophers, is what is it that, uh, that's reborn? I mean, when uh, 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 Buddhists talk about the, uh, the cycle of rebirth. Mm, I, I think you might have put your finger on something really difficult here, Martin. Can I, can I, I'd like to actually just, just comment on two things that, that you've said there, Rick. And if I can perhaps, I'm going to try and draw a, a pretty awkward contrast perhaps between the way the, the Buddhist worldview and the worldview of Western philosophy. This is the first thing. Um, and if we go back to, say, Descartes and his evil demon thought experiments in which Descartes sits down and thinks, well, he wants to know what can I know for certain about, about my experience or anything I can know for sure. And he thinks, well, there could be this evil demon that's messing with my head. Um, when I do little sums in my head, my two and two equals four, well, it might not be. The evil demon might be interfering with that thought process and it might be creating a kind of matrix-like reality in front of me. Mm -hmm. But then Descartes comes to this, this conclusion, which I think is at the heart of um, what we might call Western dualistic thinking, that he thinks, well, if I can actually doubt everything about my experience then there must be a doubter and then so so the fact that i can doubt my existence and all the sensory inputs confirms it now this is the point at which i think western philosophy and eastern philosophy is represented by buddhism might just part company because what buddhists would say is well this th i think therefore i am the classic cogito. Well, well, what Buddhists would say is, well, just because you have a lot of thoughts about a person called you doesn't necessarily mean that the um, I exists. 
And I think that, that that's probably where Western and Eastern philosophy, perhaps, as represented by Buddhism, the Buddhist worldview part company. And there was an additional point that I wanted to make, and I thought it is. <laughs> we'll come, come back to that. But if I could answer to, to that one as well. I think it, what, what really matters is, is the expectation that we, that, we, um, um, that, that we have when we come to this kind of discussion. What is it we are expecting to, to find? And yes, you know, Descartes, of course, believed there was a mind, you know, perhaps a soul that was somehow private and hidden and, you know, you couldn't touch it and it, it was definitely there and was somehow permanent. Um, but um, I think, you know, Western philosophy, of course, since then has, has moved on and Western philosophy, philosophers are also very much aware of how difficult it is to really give a, give a watertight uh, philosophical grounding to the idea of personal identity. And so something like uh, Derek Parfit's suggestion of, of uh, continuity, uh, I think, is, is quite interesting and is rather, you know, closer perhaps to, to the Buddhist view. So, so Buddhists, you know, if, if, you, if you were to ask them, well, what is the self? They would say, well, there isn't a self. But on the, at the same time, of course, they think there's something something there that we can refer to in terms of, uh, you know, the the, um, the question of, say, who's uh, Anya, me, uh, and what did I do yesterday? There's some sort of answer there because, you know, there's something that I did yesterday. You know, I went for a walk yesterday with my with my dog. Um, and But in what sense is, is that me? Well, not in the Cartesian sense, but in the sense that the, the, the person I am now is very much based on the person I was then. So there is, there is a line of continuity, which Buddhism says is a causal chain. And, and there we have another very big issue in Buddhism. Buddhism is very strong on the question of, of causality and has, there's a lot of philosophy has been done on this. Yeah, if we're looking at um, the issue of um, what you did yesterday yes. and things like that, I, I do think that in the Buddhist scriptures that the, the, the Buddha accepts that there is a kind of an empirical limited self. Um, but when you pull the focus back to get the bigger picture, that that, 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 that kind of cluster of things that might include your memories of what you did yesterday or the day before, um, that, that, that collectively there's nothing kind of permanent within that. Yes, yes, yes. That 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 that, that, may, that And I think with with the, with the um, thing about cause and effect, yes. um, it is actually something that that, that puzzles me a little bit. The, the it's a very very difficult uh, teaching uh, when you actually encounter it in the Buddhist scriptures. It's called Paticca Samapada, yes. um, the conditioned chain of co-production. I think, and I, 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 I th uh, when I've actually read about this, it's very confusing and difficult to, to pin down. It is confusing, and I, I think perhaps that's the kind of thing for for which we need to also look to, to later Buddhist philosophers. Say, you know, the great medieval Buddhist philosopher. Vasubandhu, you know, did some wonderful work and engaged in very exciting uh, discussions with his uh, opponents, the, the um, more orthodox schools of, of philosophy in India, such as the Nyaya school. And, and he talks about a causal chain that, that continues. Of course, the difficulty is, how do you pick out the causal chain that's the one person? Say, how do you pick out the causal chain that, that's Anya? So you could say, well, whatever I feel and do now uh, is, is somehow a foundation for what I am. Well, now and that's again a foundation for what I'm now. So so that's that's easy to uh, easy to see. On the other hand, if you shake my hand, of course we causally interact. And if you if you press my fingers rather hard, then you know maybe they're going to hurt a little bit for about thirty seconds. But you know so you have um, you have definitely had some some physical effect on my hand. But yet you're not me. And so so Vasubandhu has the problem of saying, well, how come we can causally interact and yet we can pick out that one causal chain that is the one person. 
I think that's a, a, a very interesting and difficult question. I have to admit, straight from the other, it's something that I've been thinking about quite recently. Um, there is, I think, a Zen um, institute in, in, in America somewhere, maybe in California, called Tassajara, where you can go and do Buddhist retreats and do lots of meditation. And they, I, I gather that they sell a T-shirt there, which might be a quotation from the uh, medieval um, Zen monk and, and philosopher Dogen. And it says, deep belief in cause and effect. And um, it was mentioned on a blog recently, and I keep thinking to myself, well, I've been reading about Buddhism for, for a long, long time now, and, and um, I'm saying, what is this? The only, the only answer I can probably give for, from this point of view is that, um, is, is that maybe what is being um, explored here is that our actions do have effects, but also that maybe a, a different kind of emphasis appears in Zen, which is an emphasis on, on, on the constant rebirth of now, that... The, the, in a way, I think that the Zen Buddhists would say that all there is is now, which gives birth to the next yes. uh, sort of bit of now, if you like. And that what happens in this bit of now has been affected by what went on before. And that the, the, if there is a kind of – it was rebirth. It was reincarnation that you were mentioning earlier, Rick. And I was going to say something about this. that, that I don't see that, that you can square up no self, yeah. believe there isn't a permanent and changing soul or self with reincarnation. Well, not what, with what really happens is that we are reborn into the flow of reality. That, that's the best I can do with it. Yeah. And there are quite a few – Recent Buddhist writers who have been saying this, that, that um, Buddhism does not teach reincarnation, and it's, it's yes. quite interesting and controversial. Well, it's, it's a sort of rebirth, isn't it, which would, would make yeah. more sense. But it's, it's very difficult to see how you know, even a causal chain would survive something as well, dramatic as, as death, which is a very big event. Well, so, so far we've, we've, we've talked a little bit about the Buddhist worldview, and, and I, th I think we can all get a sense of, of the idea of impermanence and the many problems uh, that are involved. Um, I would also like to come back to Nirvana perhaps a little bit uh, later on, but I think next we should talk a little bit about uh, Buddhist ethics, because how does all of this impact on how we should live, you know, what we should do in our lives, and I think that's ultimately uh, what, what we're all interested in. So we're going to play a little bit of, of music, and then we'll talk about that. So giving us her own version of an important Buddhist concept, that's the concept of karma, uh, is Alicia Keys. That's our next song.
you're listening to Philosophy Now Radio. I'm Anja Steinbauer and here, I'm here with my guests Martin Muttrell and uh, Rick Lewis. We're talking about Buddhist philosophy. Well, let's, let's talk in some more detail about uh, Buddhist ethics. So ethics, as most of you know, is about how we should live, who we should be, what we should do. And really, this is what, what we all want to know. The Dalai Lama, the Buddhist that really everybody knows uh, or has heard of at least, is reported to have described the average human life like this. Man sacrifices his health in order to make money, then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health, and then he's so anxious about the future that he doesn't enjoy the present, the result being that he doesn't live in the present or the future. He lives as if he is never going to die and then dies having never really lived. Well, nice, you know, it's really well said. He's got away with words, doesn't he, the Dalai Lama, he really does. Um, very quotable, but, you know, is, is really Buddhism the answer here? So what's, what would life be like um, as a Buddhist? You know, what, what is a Buddhist life? Uh, Martin, does, does Buddhism have any good recommendations for us when it comes to ethics? Yes, um, there are five um, ethical teachings um, which the Buddha gave. Five, uh, he, he actually gave out um, a kind of... A kind of list of precepts, rules for um, living your life if you're a monk or nun, or if you're a lay person. And they're not like they're not deontological rules. They're not set in granite and can't be violated. The idea of, of observing these rules or precepts is simply it's about character building, really. The, 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 there's, there's a connection with kind of Aristotelian virtue ethics and even Aristotle's golden mean, a kind of middle way of, 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 of moderate self-discipline behavior. But the five um, ethical teachings which are most central are to, uh, called Panchasila, the five precepts, are to ab uh, abstain from taking life. It's the famous principle of non-violence or ahimsa, to abstain from taking what is not given, um, to abstain from sensuous um, or sexual misconduct, misuse of the senses, and um, particularly um, going in the wrong direction with your uh, with your own sexual urges, um, to abstain from harsh and wrongful speech, and to abstain from intoxicants that cloud the mind. Those are the five central teachings. Mm, okay, that's, that sounds good. I mean, uh, so these are moral principles. It sounds a little bit like the Ten Commandments or something like that, this kind of deontological uh, ethics, as, as we call it, so sort of rule-based um, ethics. Of course, these rules need a fair bit of interpretation, so they're not straightforward, and I suppose there are cases where they, they might clash as well. Yeah, they're, they're kind of teleological. They're, they're, they're kind of, if you kind of moderate your behavior in this way then you will th this will help you to trigger the insights into reality that um i've already described that the three marks you will actually see things clearly for yourself that um that things are impermanent and that that, that although that, that clinging to a false sense of self involves even a lot of suffering so it, it's kind of the, the moral side of character building to produce those, those, those insights but yes there have been traditionally some quite um varying interpretations of those precepts especially around the different uh, countries to which buddhism spread Yes, and, and I'm, I'm sure that, that especially in, in our sort of more modern world, a principle such as, such as that uh, of, of avoiding sexual misconduct uh, is it, kind of controversial because what, what is the content of, of that? You know, what, what is the content? It's actually quite um, traditional um, in the sense that um, in terms of... Um, 
sexual relationships, uh, the, the monogamy generally has been seen to be the pattern, though there are um, Buddhist cultures where um, I think polyandry is tolerated, having um, more than one husband. Nepal, I think, is a place where, where that goes on. Um, but generally, it, it, the, the, it, it's quite a conservative outlook and it's it, it almost has its counterpart in traditional um christianity say in judeo-christian ethics which is it's all about kind of um generally engaging in monogamous sexual behavior sure. and um perhaps saving sex for marriage that kind of thing because because of the fact that sexuality is such a, such a powerful force and drive that it can easily be misused yes um victor do you, did you want to comment uh, yes <clears throat> Um, I think perhaps the uh, the aspect of Buddhist ethics, which is best known among non-Buddhists, is uh, the first precept you mentioned, um, abstaining from taking life in non-violence. Um, uh, I have questions about how that uh, that plays out in in practice, um, um, in, in 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 the real world. There, there was a <laughs> there was a, a film called Air America uh, about twenty years ago. Mel Gibson, and in it, I think he's 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 part of a, a covert American operation in Laos, um, and he's a pilot, and he calls himself a Buddhist, and he he performs Buddhist rituals before he takes off in his plane and so on. And uh, one of the other characters says, uh, you know, to him, "I just don't believe that a true Buddhist would be in the gun running business." Okay, and Mel, Mel Gibson says, "Well, I didn't say I was a good Buddhist." Um, <laughs> Is, is it possible to be a good Buddhist and be in the gun-running business? I mean, uh, there are Buddhist countries, obviously, or countries with, with a lot of Buddhists in, which have armies and which have been involved in wars and so on. Is, are, are there circumstances in, in which Buddhists can take up arms and take lives? Uh, and it's, it's even, even bud, good Buddhists, or is it always just a, 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 a very unfortunate fall from the ideal of Buddhism to, to participate in any kind of armed struggle? Yeah, I, I think that the, 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 what we're talking about here is, um, I can't remember right originally, so there's a TSL, it'd be between the idea, or the ideal and the reality falls the shadow. And while in theory, um, Buddhists generally um, should be non-violent in their um, behavior towards others, uh, well... In actual fact, the first example that springs to mind is that of the samurai uh, medieval warriors in Japan who uh, definitely would have seen themselves as, as subscribing to Buddhist philosophy and see their own practice of swordsmanship maybe as a, the art of Bushido, as a, as, a, as a type of meditation. And at the end of the day, they're going on the battlefield and, um, and killing people. And um, certainly during um, World War II, in, in Japan, that the um, there were certain Buddhist writers who embraced the war aims of the militarized Japanese government, and but they thought they were they were bringing civilization to the world. So, you certainly get those um, perversions. Just just to contrast them with something though, um, one of the early converts to Buddhism was a guy called Ashoka, who was basically um, an emperor, a king ruling over pretty much what's now most of um, modern India, and it was because of the the bloodshed. Uh, that happened in a kind of a, an uprising in a little part of his kingdom called Kalinga that, that, that he actually decided um, to convert to Buddhism and, and um, thereafter allegedly run his empire along these, the, these non-violent lines. Um, 
I think the Dalai Lama has been confronted with similar questions you know, in a situation where you had to defend yourself, what you would do. And he'd just say, well, I'd go for the sort of like the least violent path, like shooting somebody in the leg rather than through the heart and things like that. So you do get very different interpretations um, of the teaching. And, but it has been perverted. It, 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 there's no doubt about it. I think it's happening now in certain parts of the world, I think in uh, Southeast Asia. Yes, I think there, there are also um, other very interesting clashes as far as the non-harm principle is, is concerned, um, clashes with, with other Buddhist values, um, very well-known um, uh, and, and well-documented value in, in Buddhism of course, is that of compassion. Um, so it's, it's, it's an important thing to be a, a compassionate person. So it's, it's a kind of virtue ethics that runs alongside uh, the five precepts that, that Martin has talked about. And um, that plays out in, uh, in very difficult and, and interesting ways when it comes to questions such as that of euthanasia. Uh, Damien Keown, who's, who's a very interesting, very, very uh, well-informed uh, and, and reflective writer on Buddhist ethics, wrote an article on the case of Channa, which is basically a uh, Buddhist, um, Channa being a very prominent Buddhist, um, who uh, experiences a lot of pain, basically wants, wants to present uh, a Buddhist case in favor of uh, committing suicide uh, due to the pain that he's experiencing, which which is in a first step uh, in uh, perhaps uh, building up an argument in favor of uh, of euthanasia you know a kind of compassionate uh, um, killing where uh, death is of course thought to be in the interests of uh, of the patient um what what do you think martin is, is euthanasia ever an option for for buddhists well um I think I should just just quickly point out that while I'm certainly taking the um, or adopting the standpoint of a Buddhist today, I'm not actually personally a Buddhist. I wouldn't self-describe as one, and I would say that that actually personally, I find the the, the Buddhist position, the traditional Buddhist position on euthanasia, is something that um, that does concern me. The, the The basic idea here is that is that you basically let your life take its course uh, in whatever direction that it goes and now if you end up at the end of your life with some devastating illness like say motor neurone disease or something like that um that there is an opportunity here to expunge some past bad karma and that if you were to prematurely end your life well um again Traditionally, in the Buddhist teachings, you would you would you would then in a future life the the, the, the karmic consequences of your actions are unavoidable, and, and they were, you would actually find yourself in a worse situation in a future mm. life. I have um, stumbled occasionally across Buddhist writers who um, have, have taken a different view of assisted suicide, but I'm not in my own personal reading. Not that I'm sure it's out there. Mm. Uh, I, I can't call to mind anybody who does but uh, it, it's something which, which does cause me a problem because personally i think there are situations where assisted suicide is is ethical um and so um i wouldn't identify with the buddhist position on it. all i've given you is, is the, the traditional yes, angle yes yes because i mean these are of course very very important uh, applied problems that we're wrestling with uh, in particular in, in our time um if it's okay i'd, I'd like to also um bring to our listeners' attention another angle uh, on uh, Buddhist ethics, uh, some, something that's perhaps a bit unusual from a, um, from a Western philosophy point of view. Uh, my old professor of uh, Buddhist studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies, Alexander Piotrgorsky, who was absolutely wonderful, 
hammered home to, to us very much. He impressed on, on our undergraduate brains the idea that the main problem that human beings face from a Buddhist point of view is not that of suffering, but the main problem is that of ignorance. Um, and uh, and I, I found in my later studies of Buddhism that to be true. Uh, and this is where I'd like, like us to perhaps think a little bit about the three poisons. Uh, you often find represented, especially when you look at those beautiful uh, images of the Tibetan Wheel of Life, uh, at the very core of, uh, uh, of, 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 the, um, of the Wheel of Life, three very damaging influences in our lives. And the worst of it is, is ignorance. The other one is aggression and the third one is greed. And the idea is to identify that which is most harmful in our lives. So, so rather than uh, only focusing on what, what we should be doing, there's also a focus on what we should be avoiding. And perhaps greed is also quite an interesting one. We all know about Gordon Gekko, greed is good. You know, it is sort of a driving force for life. Uh, and Buddhism uh, clearly says, says no, that's, 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 uh, that's, that's impossible. Um, what, what do you think, Rick? Is, is ignorance the main problem of humanity? You at Philosophy Now actually give out a, a yearly award uh, in the fight against uh, st for, for contributions in the fight against stupidity so 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 you should have some sympathy for that view <clears throat> yes it does depend what we mean by by um, ignorance and also by stupidity um, and yes we do have this award for um, contributions in the fight against stupidity an award which we give every year and uh, in fact we're just looking for nominations for people who should win it this year so send in your nominations if you have any um, yeah, there is a lot of stupidity and a lot of ignorance in the world of course um, but the view we've, we've tended to take and as judges is that the the the, um, um, the most problematic kind of stupidity is the stupidity we all suffer from from time to time by failing to examine our own beliefs and, our, uh, and from maybe falling into um, um, habits of thought which we don't challenge in our, ourselves um, and that uh, therefore the fight against stupidity is a fight within each one of us um, um, I think that's pretty close to the Buddhist idea, Martin. Yeah, I'd like to comment a bit on the three poisons. Um, and I think that, that really what we're looking at here are three psychological tendencies. Um, greed is the tendency to overindulge um, in our experience. And that might be simply expressing itself in terms of partying hard, binge drinking, or just eating a bit too much chocolate. So it, it, we, we can't relate to our experience in a balanced way. Now, the, 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 that, that's the greed side. The hatred side is to reject your experience. And um, I guess this might be encapsulated by um, a particular type of person that's emerged in Japan called hikikomori characters. And th these are people that shut themselves away from the world and spend all the time in the bedroom. And they are often teenagers who've withdrawn from the world and, and, and they just can't handle the outside um, situation. It's often because they've been bullied at school, but um, their parents end up leaving food for them outside and things like that. But anybody sort of like any teenager who goes to the room and sulks is, is engaging in um, hatred or rejection of their experience. And But then also what we have here at the, uh, at the base of this is, is ignorance, which is a kind of tendency to blindly sort of bulldoze your way through your experience. Um, I, but I also think it can be wedded to ideology. Somebody who's so enthralled to their own cognitive biases yes. that they can't see yes. the wood for the tree. So with, with, with the three poisons there, I think that what we're looking at are three um, psychological 
little tendencies that can cause us great harm and rebound on us. Yes. Yes, and I, th I think I think I think you're right. You know, about, about uh, ignorance having to do with being sort of uncritical of, of oneself and one, one's one's own attitude, and sometimes we just don't think enough. Which perhaps brings us quite close to to, to Socrates and the idea of, of the unexamined life. Although I think Buddhists wouldn't say it's not worth living. Um, well, I, th I think uh, it's time for a music break. I wanted to find out what uh, the Dalai Lama's favorite music is so that we could play a song for him. But uh, apparently he isn't really into music. But he does say that music can, and I quote, send a message of peace and conciliation. Not sure that this one will. So here is Dharma and the Bomb by Bad Religion. You're listening to Philosophy Now Radio. I'm Anja Steinbauer. I'm here with Martin Martel and Rick Lewis. We're discussing Buddhist philosophy. Einstein once said, Buddhism has the characteristics of what would be expected in a cosmic religion for the future. It transcends a personal God, avoids dogmas and theology. It covers both the natural and spiritual. And it is based on a religious sense, aspiring from the experience of all things, natural and spiritual, as a meaningful unity. Well, that's that's great praise. Um, why is this so? Let's talk a little bit about the reception of Buddhism in the West, its its popularity um, as a method, you know, perhaps as a religious alternative, but also the trepidation with which a lot of philosophers uh, in the West approach it, and perhaps even the prejudice that uh, that some of them harbour uh, against it. So. Um, What what uh, can we say about uh, Buddhism in terms of uh, its usefulness to us, to our lives, uh, to, to our philosophical uh, aspirations today, Martin? Okay, there's a few different things I would want to say here. First of all, um, the great claim that Buddhists make, that um, which is enshrined in the Buddhist teaching of the Third Noble Truth, that you can put a stop to suffering. Um, well, I think you would be in trouble if you, if you could. Uh, I just don't <laughs> think that this is about the cessation, the stopping of physical suffering, what happens 
when you do a lot of meditation. Um, and the Buddha himself claimed, uh, complained rather of being in physical pain towards the end of his life. And it's there in um, one of the more famous Buddhist scriptures about the end of his life. And so I don't think we're talking here of the, the, uh, about the idea that Buddhism can put a stop to suffering dead. I think what we perhaps we're thinking about here is is perhaps the idea that doing a lot of meditation can give you some kind of insight into reality and loosen the the the, the grip that the, 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 this false sense of self has on you, so that you can perhaps more deeply appreciate the present moment. Don't quite get so much enthralty around um, clusters of thoughts that, that, that cause you problems and so on. But this is all enshrined, I think, in, in, in Buddhist meditation and the practice of mindfulness. And um, what mindfulness is about, I think, is, is really about just becoming more aware of the, uh, of the present moment, tuning into yourself and what's happening right here and now. But the very interesting thing about mindfulness is that, that it seems to be um, growing in popularity as a kind of, um, I'm really to call it a psychotherapy, but a kind of therapy in itself, that, that it's attracted the attention of the NHS, I think the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, uh, has said that a, a certain um, offshoot of, of, of mindfulness practice, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which and a lot is being written about this at the moment, and if you go into bookshops, you'll see that there are a lot of books on mindfulness that, that, that doing a lot of mindfulness um, as a practice as a distinctive form of meditation can help you to better manage um, some quite debilitating um, physical and psychological conditions. It seems to cut the rate of relapse in, uh, relapses in, in, in people who've had clinical depression. Um, it seems to um, alleviate some of the problems that people have when they're living with, with chronic pain. And so um, this kind of um, value that mindfulness practice can bring to your everyday life. I think it could even be decoupled from, from the philosophy and just, just yes, treated in its I'm, own I'm, right as something that's that. beneficial. There are a lot of, of, of small-scale studies yeah. that are indicating yeah. that it is good for you. That's, that's amazing. That's ma and, and you're right. I mean, mindfulness has become a real buzzword. It's, it's, it's everywhere now, and, and new publications come out uh, all the time, uh, some probably very well-informed and others perhaps not, um, as with everything else. So, so yes, the question of, of whether we can separate out the practice from the theory, I think, is a very interesting one, you know, because to what degree, and we are really returning to a question we asked at the beginning, to what degree is Buddhism some sort of package deal? I've had Buddhists suggest to me very politely that, you know, you can only get that far in your understanding of Buddhist philosophy if you, if you don't actually practice Buddhism. So, in other words, if you don't meditate as well. Um, uh, on the other hand, you know, now what we're doing and what is, of course, a popular thing to do uh, in, in the West is to just take the practice and understand mindfulness is, is the original contribution of, of the Buddha. Right? I, th I think there are two different kinds of meditation that help you towards enlightenment. Uh, the, the, the first type has, has always been there um, and uh, even, even before uh, uh, the, the Buddha um, uh, achieved enlightenment, but it wasn't sufficient to help towards enlightenment. So he introduced this new uh, kind of practice of, of uh, mindfulness. Um, so, so that is a very core to Buddhism. And uh, is it is it legitimate to just just separate it off from uh, from the theory? Is is that is that somehow uh, is is it wrong? Is it perhaps quite a violent thing to do? Well, it, it's interesting because um, a lot of um, support is coming 
from clinical psychologists for um, the use of mindfulness in therapy. Um, I know one guy, uh, Lawrence McKenna, who, who deals with he's a clinical psychologist who uses mindfulness as a frontline therapy for his tinnitus patients who have suffered from severe ringing in the ears, and, and he, he has. Um, He's he's quite an advocate of it. But on the other hand, um, I have also read fairly recently um, a suggestion from somebody who's in the Zen tradition, somebody that I respect quite a lot. And he says that the, 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 actually, um, if you do start on the path of meditation, that, that you actually do need a teacher because um, you're kind of like taking the lid off a pressure cooker. You're looking very deeply into your own experience and... Um, if you're staring down the well, there are going to be some sort of like unpleasant things down there that you, and, and, and mental states that you can get into that you, that you need somebody to guide you. So that there are those contrasting views and all I can do is kind of state them without really knowing um, which one to support. Yes. And Rick, I think you tried some meditation at some point, didn't you? Didn't you actually join a Buddhist meditation Mm. Yes, years ago, yes, yes. I, I, um, I'd heard that uh, this was a good way of enhancing your... I was really trying to use it as a tool, I suppose, which maybe yes, is, yeah. may or may not be legitimate. I don't know. I'd heard it was a good way of enhancing your powers of concentration. Mine were rubbish. I thought maybe <laughs> this would help. But I discovered I didn't have enough powers of concentration to even uh, uh, persist with the, the meditation, so I kind of dropped out. It's a shame. It's not a reflection on the, um, uh, meditation or, or, or the practices of Buddhism. I think it's a reflection on myself. Oh. I, I think the thing is that... that this is something that one of the Tibetan teachers, who's quite controversial, actually, Chogam Trungpa, said in one of his, his books, he said, the thing about meditation is it is incredibly boring. Um, <laughs> one of the more popular um, Zen teachers, a guy called Brad Warner, whose who's oh, books yes. are wonderful, um, he just says, well, you know, this thing about sitting and staring at a wall all day, um, get a life. But he says that ultimately it's beneficial. Uh, and boredom is is a state that, that perhaps um, we need to maybe experience a little bit more because we're always wanting to be dazzled by the next um, shiny object and yes. experience, aren't we? So, yes. uh, and that there is something beyond that, of course. But yeah, um, I do do um, a mindfulness practice. And I can tell you, it's dead boring. Lots of other things I'd rather be doing. <laughs> Yes, and perhaps that's why, why we particularly need it as well. And I think that's why a lot of people seek it out, because, because you're right. You know, we're always looking for the next thing you know, to, to do or to experience. I would also say one thing here that, 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 that we haven't discussed, and that is that, that, that we're talking about, well, what was the payoff? What do you get out of all this? And, and perhaps some a, a calmer, more concentrated state of mind, um, insight into reality as it truly is. But um, the ultimate... Um, aim of, of Buddhism is perhaps to reduce suffering if not to uh, you can't eliminate the physical suffering maybe to, to give you a handle on psychological discomfort that, 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 that makes you better at dealing with it but this thing called nirvana Yes. Um, is, is something oh, Nirvana. which I, I, Let's come back to Nirvana. I, I, it, it always seems to for a long time when I was studying Buddhism I always thought it's some higher state of consciousness and when you get it you'll just be in a kind of like blissful bubble and nothing will bother you as time goes on I just think it, it's, it's just uh, that it isn't about some higher state of reality it's just about tuning into the present moment and realising you might as well go with it because you're not going to get anything better anything else <laughs> you're thinking about right now is a fantasy in your head and so no matter how how lousy the experience might be that you're currently living through well um 
if you look at it from the right point of view, it might just be able to handle it a bit better. Right, but which brings us back to the ignorance thing, really. So it's, it's about it is about eliminating ignorance. But but yes, that's always bothered me about about Buddhism that nirvana is so ill-defined because well, you know, nobody can really fully fully uh, describe it because um, we, we haven't really. Those who have had the experience aren't really around to 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 uh, to, to share it with us, uh, and uh, so so we'll we'll have to wait and see if indeed we'll we'll get there. And I think largely it's defined in negative terms, isn't it? The absence of of suffering and the absence of all those those various things that afflict us in our uh, uh, in our existence now. The, the most radical down to earth presentation of what nirvana is, I think, occurs in again in the in. Um in the Zen Buddhist tradition, in the writings of um, and teachings of the uh, Soto Zen um, Japanese teacher Dogen, and he says that meditation itself is enlightenment. Just doing it and sitting there—that's um, the thing. Yes. And so, don't look for any. And also, there's some very, very good writing out there by a guy called Steve Hagen, who uh, is popularizing Buddhism quite well. And quite a few of his books are in um, published by Penguin. And he he just constantly um, affirms the idea of just don't expect any kind of attainment from this. It seems as if you're looking for something better than what you're getting right now, yes. and then that's actually taking you away from. Yeah. Um, what is really meant to unfold as a, as a, as a, as a product of meditative practice. So in, in closing, this is a speech of mine, um, <laughs> it's been a long one. Um, I better just say that I really think you probably have to spend quite a lot of time doing it to get the benefits, which is yes. why there are monasteries and full-time monks and nuns in them. Yes, but I, I think I think that's um, a wonderful thing. I mean, here we've got a philosophy that's not just um, a theory, but actually also practice, which, of course, we know, we, we all know as philosophy uh, as a way of life. And um, I think, you know, we, we haven't seen any of that for a very long time in the West, so certainly classically it was, it was there. Uh, but but it is very refreshing to to have this talking uh, more again about uh, philosophy just just very briefly i mean buddhist philosophy is so often confined to asian study departments um so if you you know study the languages and and, and culture of of india or, or japan then you're likely to get a doses of it um but yeah, rick I'd, I'd like to ask you i mean what would it take to make buddhist philosophy more academically respectable in philosophy departments because you know western philosophers seem to say oh no we, buddhist philosophy it's not that's not the right thing to to engage with you know we should we should just yes yes well i, I think that's um it's certainly true that uh, as far as i'm aware there aren't that many philosophy departments in britain or the states which are teaching buddhist philosophy or, or engaging very much in buddhist philosophy um and maybe there are two reasons for that firstly that there's there's a, maybe a misconception that um uh so far as Buddhists are trying to investigate the nature of the universe and of human beings and their place within it, they're doing so through the, the practice of meditation, and therefore it's yes. a kind of an, yeah. a, a kind of intuitionism. It's a kind yes. of you know trying to get in touch with yeah. intuitions about the world, and that's not Ooh. really the way to do it in philosophy because philosophy <laughs> is about uh, critical reason and analysis yes. and so on. Yes. And then the second thing is that the people who 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 say who realize that there's also a lot of critical reason and analysis in in, in the writings of Buddhist philosophers. Still unengaging with it, because philosophy tends to get done in, 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 within traditions. You, you react towards previous people who've written within your tradition and who share similar understandings of certain concepts, and that's a kind of fruitful way to go along. And then if you want to uh, make use 
of, or, or if you want to interest the people who are in, in within the traditions of Western philosophy in Buddhist philosophy, you have to do that by pointing out the connections, uh, how how they can use the writings of, of Buddhist philosophy and the insights of, of Buddhist philosophy in relation to the problems that they're they're, they're wrestling with anyway. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I I you know I, th- I think that's 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 quite interesting. But I I would also say that you know we are uh, quite uh, irretrievably in a in a globalized situation uh, here in 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 our uh, time in our world, and uh, you know we can't think that uh, globalization away anymore. And, and and certainly to sort of say well you know but but we want to stay quite quite insular in our philosophizing. It just seems wrong. I think philosophers who should be quite open minded should really be the first to uh, uh, to to break that barrier down. I'd just like to um, comment on something that Rick said, and I think that, that one of the um, problems that I think you come up against if you're a Western philosopher with uh, uh, wanting to find out more about Buddhism is that the, there are these claims about ineffability, that, that in order to really understand Buddhism, it goes beyond concepts. Yes. And yet, um, I also, I mean, a typical example um, of this It'll only take a moment to read. Um, again, going back to this guy, who I think is quite a funny popularizer of Buddhism, Brad Warner, uh, who, who, who writes about a kind of experience of insight that he had. He says, in one, at the end of one of the chapters in his books, there's nothing I can possibly tell you that could communicate this state to you because human language by its very nature isn't up to the task. If I say kumquat or droopy granny boobs, you have an idea what I mean, but there's nothing I can say <laughs> that can communicate the reality of that experience. Yes. Do a lot of zazen, though, and you'll see it for yourself, zazen being Buddhist yes. meditation. Well. Uh, and, and so... I think that that could be a problem. It's a shame because there are some yeah, world-class yeah. thinkers in, in Buddhist philosophy, people like Nagarjuna, I mentioned Dogen earlier on. Who I, I think there could be some, a really good book written by one of the Western pop philosophers who who is prepared to sort of explore the th- yes. those writers and thinkers um, I, I, on their I, own terms. I, I think that's true. I mean, there's also the difficulty of, of concepts and problems of, of translation uh, um, and, and the like. I mean, it's, it's very difficult, I think, to find your way into uh, into this this kind of world. Uh, and, and it's, of course, it's true. Yes, let's sit down and meditate. It's not doing philosophy. But uh, I, I assure you they're, they're very um, sophisticated Discussions uh, on on metaphysics, personal identity, causality, and, and many other issues to be found uh, in Buddhist philosophy. Well, we have to come come to a, a close at this point. Uh, I would I would really uh, I would just like to ask Martin: Is there another recommendation you have for a book? I um, think that that um, the the author Steve Hagen, who I mentioned earlier on, is um, a very serious and straightforward presenter of Buddhism in an appealing way. Brad okay. Warner writes really funny books, and Matthew Ricard, um, a Tibetan Buddhist monk, writes very well about Buddhism. Those would be Excellent. Three guys I would Google for. Okay, great. That's that's really fantastic. I thank you both very much, uh, Martin Rick, for 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 being here uh, with with me to me today. Um, I'd just like to, to point out if anyone uh, would like to do philosophy uh, in London, get together with others to philosophize, uh, look up pfalondon.org, uh, Philosophy for All uh, in London. It's, it's a great organization. Uh, otherwise, um, well, uh, keep reading Philosophy Now magazine, of course. Our last piece of music is uh, Magic by Coldplay. It's goodbye from me. Grant Bartley will be hosting next week's show, so tune in again um, and uh, keep philosophizing. Bye. <laughs>